Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. The call to confession this morning is from Proverbs 20, verse 20. Whoever curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in deep darkness. This proverb is the corollary to the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. This proverb is a warning about the dire consequences of failing to honor your parents, of cursing your father or your mother. This isn't the first warning about this either. In Exodus 21 and Leviticus 20, we read that cursing your parents is a capital crime. We read, he who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. The Bible is pretty clear on this. The issue is fairly cut and dried. But in our culture, it seems almost draconian to require the death penalty for such crimes. Isn't that over the top? Many things have contributed to this. Our culture has glorified youth and ostracized age. We've segmented our population, and we've separated families with work and school and sports and hobbies and whatever else gets in the way. Many kids identify with their peers more than with their parents and their siblings, and the result has been deplorable. Unfortunately, it is fairly common for children to mistreat, disobey, and even curse their parents. You can see it on television, on the streets, and in the grocery store. If it's so common, why is it such a serious offense? Because the proverb is true. Even though we don't exercise the death penalty for those who break the fifth commandment, the death and destruction that corresponds to our culture's disobedience in this realm is everywhere. Divorce, loneliness, broken relationships, Violent crime, drugs, and prostitution are all consequences of disobedient children. Children who curse their parents and end up in deep darkness. Temporally, they, they may end up in gangs, in jails, or even in the morgue. If they go far enough down that path. But even for those who seem to get away with it, God judges ultimately. And he gave us the fifth commandment and this proverb for a reason. Just like our marriages represent Christ and his, and his body, the church, our parental and filial relationships represent God and his children. When children curse their parents, they are in direct rebellion to the ones to whom they owe their honor, obedience, and even their existence to. And as John says, if someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Applying this thinking to this proverb, how can you say you honor God when you curse your parents? 
This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So if you're willing and able, please kneel as we confess our sins. historical account of the events surrounding the growth of the church. The church has been growing by leaps and bounds in Jerusalem, and the message of the gospel is getting greater and greater notoriety. Already it has been judged by the Sanhedrin in the persons of the apostles twice. And today we shall see that it goes back to them, and the result of the threefold witness is that the leaders of Judaism outright reject and rebel against God and his anointed Messiah. The third time's the charm. And so we have the story of the first martyr, Stephen. We were introduced to Stephen last week. He was one of the seven appointed to serve tables and to do the, the hands-on work of the church to relieve the apostles so that they could focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. In verse 5 it said that Stephen was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And now we jump right into his witness, Acts 6, starting at verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. So the stage is set. Here is the context to this remarkable story. Stephen, a Hellenistic Christian called to the work of the, the diaconal work of the church, is filled with faith and power, doing wonderful works among the people, and there arises opposition, the synagogue of the freedmen. The makeup of this group of opponents is of similar origin to Stephen. They are also Jews of the diaspora. Faithful Jews who came from Greek culture. They were Greek-speaking Jews. They were, they were Hellenists. The Cyrenians and Alexandrians were from northern Africa, the, the city of Cy Cyrene and Alexandria. And those from Cilicia and Asia were from the region of modern-day Turkey in Asia Minor. The same region that the Apostle Paul came from. Paul was from Tarsus, which was the capital city of Cilicia. The synagogue of the freedmen is either a reference to the fact that they were descendants of former slaves who had been set free, the freedmen, or they bought their freedom. But even more likely than that is that they were Jews who had purchased their Roman citizenship. They'd inherited the freedom of Roman citizenship, all of them coming from important towns, important regions of the Roman Empire. So these foreign Jews were very zealous for the cause of Judaism. They were, they were zealous for the law. For the, they were zealous for Moses. 
And this is partly because they placed a premium on its importance. On the pre- they put a premium on the importance of the temple and Moses and the law. It was a greater sacrifice for these Jews to believe and live according to the law than it was for the local naturalized Jews in, in Israel. Because if they were going to become Jews, if they were going to either, if they came from uh, a Greek culture and they, they became proselytes and became Jews, or if they were Jews that were living outside of Israel, they had to live counterculturally in their hometowns. They were, they were, they were, they were different from everybody else. And moreover, they they incurred great expense to travel to Jerusalem, to the temple, for their feasts. For the locals, the people in Israel, their faith was more automatic. It was the air they breathed, it was the culture they lived in. So the synagogue of the freedmen disputed with Stephen. And God was with Stephen so that they couldn't catch him in his words. Or resist his wisdom in honest debate. They attacked the church, they attacked Stephen, and God vindicated him in his words. And so since they couldn't capture him in honest debate, they turned to dishonest accusation, complete with induced accusers and false witnesses. Starting at verse 11. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders, and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. A couple of quick observations here. First, there are great similarities between the story of Stephen and his martyrdom and between the story of Jesus and the crucifixion. Jesus was falsely accused because they couldn't take him in honest debate, just like Stephen. Jesus was accused of claiming to be able to destroy the temple, just like Stephen is accused of affirming that Jesus is able to do. Jesus was accused of blasphemy, just like Stephen. The second observation here is that I'd like to point out the precise accusation made against Stephen, because it has much bearing on the rest of today's text. The rest of today's text we're going to get into it is Stephen's address, his answer to the charges. But first we need to understand clearly what what are the charges? What is Stephen being accused of here? First they said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Now had this accusation been true, the death sentence was warranted. The problem is that they failed to display that Stephen blasphemed Moses or God, and we shall see that in a bit when Stephen roundly defends himself and his position on Moses and God in his response without a hint of blasphemy. But notice, however, that Stephen's accusers have misappropriated their emphasis. They're they're more concerned about Moses' honor than God. They're more concerned about the traditions, about the temple, than they are about the true God. They're more concerned about the law than what the law points to, or who gave 
the law. And this is evident in their second accusation, in which they said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Now here's where the technicalities of their lie come to the surface. They've mixed truth with falsehood, which is what makes their accusation particularly pernicious. It, it really stings, it really bites, because there are, there are seeds of truth in the accusation. It, it's entirely likely that, that Stephen did say that Jesus would destroy the temple, and that Stephen did say that he would change the customs of Moses. The problem is, is that does not equate to blasphemy of Moses and God. So they've equated the law with the customs which Moses delivered to us in this holy place with God. In their idolatry, in the idolatry of the accusers, they had traded God's law, which was a gracious commandment intended to grant God's people forgiveness and point them to Him in faithful worship. They equated the law and traded that for a set of rules for the customs of Moses, which they were which which they did in order to earn them favor with God, in order to earn themselves glory, so that they could overlord it over all the rest of the Jews. Even worse, they had confused a physical location with the God of heaven and earth. They say he speaks blasphemous words against this holy place. So Stephen had said that Jesus would destroy this place and change the customs. And this would have certainly been blasphemous if, first, if Jesus was not God, and second, if God's identity was necessarily tied to the temple. But Jesus was God, and Stephen is going to tell us in a bit, in a bit about temples and, and how important they are in God's economy. And, and that's, a, that's a big part of his, his answer to this accusation. But, but in short, he says, temples are not God. God is, cannot be contained in temples. But these Jews were more zealous to defend the honor of a stone building than to receive the gift of God in the flesh. The whole point of the Old Testament was to promise a Redeemer, a Savior. That is the Gospel. Starting in Paradise, which is what we've talked about in the Heidelberg Catechism this morning, at Paradise, God promised a Son who would crush the head of the serpent. And the whole story of the, of the Old Testament, of all the covenants, and God's work with all of the patriarchs is telling about God sending a Redeemer, God sending a Messiah. The point of the temple was to draw people to the God who was going to be the God of salvation, who would redeem us from our sin and place us back into fellowship with Him. But these Jews were more zealous to defend the temple than to embrace God. But God is telling a grand story in this narrative. It is not Stephen who is on trial here. It's the Sanhedrin. It's the nation of the Jews. Stephen has power and he has works because he has God on his side. The Jews were concerned about keeping the temple holy. 
But they had forgotten the very foundations of the holiness of the temple. They'd forgotten the basis of their religion, the basis of their culture, and the message of Moses and the law. But God is about to remind them that he is the one who makes things holy. Starting with Stephen, verse 11. And all who sat in the council looked steadfastly at him, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Where have we seen this before? When have we seen a face shining? When Moses was with God on Mount Sinai, that's glory. When God gave the law, Moses' face shone. God's presence causes Stephen's face to radiate, bearing witness to the truth and the power of his words, God's message to the nation of Israel. Stephen here is bringing a judgment on the nation. Then the starting at chapter 7, verse 1, Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. As we go through Stephen's address, pay attention to two facets of it. First, God is the prime mover in this story. Every time, everything is dependent upon God. God is the author of the story. God is writing the story. God is the one who's doing all of the works that Stephen is recounting in his address. And the second facet is that the Jewish, the Jewish nation, as a, as a representation of mankind in general, persistent, persistently rejects God's messengers. So God chooses to work in the world. He sends Moses, he sends Abraham, he sends Joseph. God's working, God's working, God's doing all of this. And he's bringing grace. He's creating a covenant. He's creating a people. He's giving a message. He's sending a prophet like Moses. And you will listen to him. But as God's doing that persistently, consistently, the Jews reject the Savior that God sends them. So Stephen starts with God. God is more important than Moses, more important than the law, and far more important than temples or specific locations. And since Jesus is God, God's law, the message from Moses, his word, the scriptures, are consistent with the Christian gospel. So Stephen goes about proving it by reciting the law and, and emphasizing God's work. Chapter 7, verse 3. Verse 2. Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. So here we see Abraham, but that's not where Stephen starts. 
Abraham's just a man in, Cal- in the land of the Chaldeans. He's just living over there. It's God who starts the story. God comes down to Abraham. The God of glory appeared to Abraham. So here we see God coming down to Abraham. Where? Not in Israel, not in Jerusalem, not at this holy place, but in Mesopotamia and in Haran. Notice the stark comparison to the Jews' accusation. God is holy, and places are dependent on God for holiness. God worked with Abraham in Mesopotamia and Haran, and he did not give Abraham the promised land. How can you blaspheme this holy place? Abraham didn't even have land to set his foot on. But God did give Abraham a promise. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, and they would bring them into bondage and oppress them for hundred years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. Next we see God working with Joseph, who was rejected by the patriarchs. Not in the promised land, but in Egypt, starting in verse 9. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham brought, bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. So the patriarchs lived and died in Egypt. They rejected Joseph, God's savior for them. And yet God worked with Joseph in Egypt and brought them salvation nonetheless, despite their rejection of him. However, the holy God fulfilled his promise to Abraham. God worked with Moses, not in the promised land, but in Egypt. Starting in verse 17. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. And when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and 
brought him up as her own son, and Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and was mighty in words and deeds. Now when he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed, and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. So Moses is here being called by God to save the people. And they did not understand his salvation. And, he goes, and Stephen goes on to tell us the story of that. Verse 26. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. They rejected God's Savior. The patriarchs rejected Joseph, and now the Israelites reject Moses. But like God chose Joseph in Egypt, he now chooses Moses, not in Jerusalem, but in the wilderness of Sinai. Verse 30, And when forty years had passed, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I send you to Egypt. There's two important things here. Holy ground. That's where God is. Where God is, is the holy ground. And yet, you don't see the Israelites making pilgrimages to the wilderness of Mount Sinai. You don't see them defending the glory of that holy place. Another thing is that God saves his people, but God chooses men to be his saviors. He says, I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them, to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. So God makes men holy. God stays with Moses as he leads the people from Egypt through the Red Sea and through the wilderness despite their rejection of Moses, their earlier rejection of him. Verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the, by the hand of the angel? who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out. And after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, and in the Red Sea, and in the wilderness, forty years. Moreover, God gave a prophecy through Moses. Verse 37. This is that Moses, who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. 
So Moses, God calls. Moses, God sanctifies. Moses, God sends to his people. And Moses tells the people that he's going to send a prophet. And this is where Stephen is starting to bring this all together. He's starting to say this this, he's, he's been recounting the story of the people of Israel. He's, he's, he's saying, you are founded on this. You, this temple, this nation, these people are all based on the covenant of circumcision. They're all based on this people drawn out of Egypt. But you don't even know your own story. You don't get it. The rebellion of Israel was immediate. Even while Moses was up on the mountain receiving the law, they rebelled against God. Verse 38, this is what Stephen says. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. We do not know what has... <clears throat> They turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. So their, their rebellion, their rejection of God and his Messiah was immediate. And now he's about to tell us that the rebellion was ultimate. It was bearing rotten fruit through the generations of Israel, culminating in the exile to Babylon, symbolizing God's rejection of Israel because of their refusal to submit and obey. Verse 42, Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god, Remphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. That's a quote from the prophets, and it's, uh, and it's, it's a proclamation of judgment on Israel for their long-standing rejection and rebellion. And now Stephen changes gears and he starts talking about the history of the temple. Verse 44, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. So here we see the temple, the tabernacle is the precursor to the temple. Where does this, the tabernacle come into play? In the wilderness. It goes through the wilderness with them. The tabernacle, the holy place, is with God's people. That is the point of the temple, is, is to be a place for God's people to come and meet Him, to inquire of His will. And so here they go and they have the tabernacle and it's in the wilderness. And it stays with them wherever they're going is the holy ground, wherever the tabernacle is, wherever God is meeting with his people. And then the tabernacle goes and it goes through the wilderness and it ultimately ends up on the east side of the Jordan. And then they conquer Jericho and they move into, Joshua brings it into the promised land. They set up the tabernacle in the promised land that was promised to Abraham, 
in Shechem, not in Jerusalem. And it stayed there for, for, for many years until finally David had great victory over the enemies of God. He had favor with God and he set up his, 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 uh, or his, his palace was in Jerusalem. And they moved the tabernacle to Shiloh, which was a hill opposite where the actual temple was put. And, and, but even David wasn't even allowed to build the temple. Finally, Solomon was built, allowed to build the temple where, where the temple site is. Now, now we're talking about this holy place. So finally, Solomon built him a house. But as soon as he says that, Stephen goes on and quotes from Amos, which also echoes Solomon's words at the building of the temple. In 1 Kings 8.27, Right at the consecration, at the very beginning of the temple's place in this, local, this holy place, this is what Solomon has to say. Chapter 8 of 1 Kings, verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Right at the very foundation, inauguration of the temple in this holy place, the builder of it, the great and wise King Solomon says, I cannot contain the God of heaven in this holy place. This is just a tithe. This is just a symbol that God is in control of all things and everything, and he lives everywhere and he upholds all things. And then he continues to quote Amos. He says this, However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? There is no holy place other than every place. God is everywhere. He demands our all everywhere. This is a direct rebuttal of the accusation against him. Stephen is not blaspheming God or Moses. On the contrary, Stephen listened to God. He heard the words of Moses, the message of God and Moses. And now he breaks it down for his audience. He says, this is not blasphemy against God. God has come down to meet with you. God has sent his spirit to be in our hearts. Look at my face. It's shiny. The Holy Spirit is here. God is purifying and making holy saints. He's creating a body of Christ in the church. And you reject him, just like you rejected Moses. And this is Stephen's pronouncement. His robust and true declaration against the nation of Israel and the power of the Spirit. Stephen gives them God's judgment. Starting in verse 51 of chapter 7. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Moses is a witness against you this day. Moses proclaims your condemnation because you have killed the Messiah. Stephen's accusation has bite. 
Just like when his opponents couldn't resist the wisdom or the spirit by which Stephen spoke before the trial, now they can't handle the condemnation he piles upon them. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, and said, Look, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Here we see that Stephen is not alone. His testimony is backed up in reality. He has a shiny face. He has performed miracles. He has convicted his accusers. And now he is granted a vision of God. He has a direct display of the message he has proclaimed. But this is the last straw for his assailants. This is too much for them. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is the first we see of the Apostle Paul. Not in a very attractive light. Next week we'll see how Saul started persecuting the church in earnest. However, it's noteworthy that it is here at the end of Stephen's ministry that Paul shows up. Because in many ways... When once Paul is converted, he takes on Stephen's mantle, and he carries forth Stephen's mission. And more on that in the weeks to come. But for now, it's it's important to note, Saul was there, and he agreed with what was going on. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now again, there are similarities here to Jesus' death on the cross. Receive my spirit. He cried out with a loud voice and he, and he asked God not to charge them with his sin. They're all reminiscent of Christ on the crucifixion. And this is important because remember, Luke is continuing the narrative of what he said at the beginning of chapter 1 of Acts of all that Jesus began to do and teach. It is not by accident that these similarities occur. The life of the church is the life of the body of Christ. Stephen is the embodiment of Christ. When Stephen suffers, Christ suffers with him. And it's only by the Spirit that Stephen is empowered to do what Jesus did. And that's God's story. In the Gospel... And therefore, in Stephen's witness, Stephen's proclamation here is just the gospel. He's just saying, God died for our sins. That's the gospel. In the gospel, and in Stephen's witness, we see two two ever-present and powerful threats. The vindication of God, the justification of God, and his relationship with man which is gracious and merciful. We see that, and we see the condemnation of man in the rejection of God's grace and God's mercy. So in the, in, the, in the narrative of Stephen's death, we see two competing stories. We have the murder of an innocent man, and we have 
His forgiveness in the midst of it. That's man and God. We see the Jews gnashing their teeth and stopping their ears. And we see the peace and the glory of a saint going to sleep in the knowledge of Christ's love. We see the existence of evil and the victory of righteousness in death. We see the decay of false worship. And we see the glorification of both God and man in right worship. Two threads, two stories. We have God's story and man's story. The gospel. The message that God is holy and God is mercifully working in the world always comes with a clear distinction between God's holiness and man's corruption and depravity. Thus the need for God's mercy. This always results in a damning proclamation against sin and sinners unless they repent and turn to God in a humble and contrite spirit looking for grace and mercy. The next thing we must notice about God's story is that it belongs to Him. God is the author here. God displayed Stephen's favor to all. God made Stephen's face shine. God made Stephen have power to do to work miracles. God gave Stephen the life full of faith. God never leaves Stephen. The Spirit convicts Stephen's opponents, accusers, and murderers. In death, Stephen is a victor. In the Spirit, he sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at God's right hand. God is working in the world, and his power surpasses all others. God plus one is always more than any other condemnation without combination without God. God plus Abraham is more than all the problems that Abraham faces. God plus Joseph is more than all the problems that Joseph faces. God plus Moses is more than all the problems that Moses faces. God plus Stephen is more than the Sanhedrin and the elders and the rulers of Israel, the chosen people, without God. But that leads us with an important question. How can we know what the story is for us? We must learn to read ourselves into the story. Stephen did. God's scriptures are good and true and powerful, and they rightly communicate who God is and how he works and what he wants from us. How does Stephen use the scriptures? Obviously, he knows them. He knows his scriptures. Johnny on the spot. Here's an accusation, and he says, Here are the scriptures. This is your story. Read Genesis. Read Exodus. Read Amos. He knows the scriptures. He believes the scriptures. That's why his message is so convicting. He believes what he's saying. And he applies them to his time. He reads himself into the story, and God invites us to do the same. We are invited to know Jesus, to believe in him, and to live in him. That means we must choose which side of the story we will be on, because there are only two sides. 
Our default is on the side of the Jews. We're all sinners. We're born in sin. We're prone to sin. Our default, outside of God's grace, is to be like the Jews. But the gospel and God's intervention is victory over that death. We are invited to be united to Jesus and God in the church by baptism and by membership in his body. To boldly proclaim God's work in our world. To valiantly defy God's enemies and to profess righteousness and truth and grace and mercy from the rooftops. This may mean persecution, and it may mean death, but it certainly means peace and blessing and glory and honor. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.